Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you for this morning. Father, I just ask to you as we humbly just come before your presence today. Father God, with all our doubts, with all our fears, with all our shame. God, whatever it is we enter into this place with. Father God, I pray that we would hear the call that you have for us to hear from you, to engage with you, to learn from you. Father, challenge our hearts, convict our souls. God, and enlighten us to the truths of your word and what it is you have for us. Lord, we are broken, sinful people in desperate, desperate need of you and your instruction. So, Father God, we just rest on your word and the truths you have for us, Lord. We ask you to just bless this time and bless the teaching of your word. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. <clears throat> so, as you can see, these are some very interesting verses this week. Uh, some really great verses, uh, and for a lot of reasons, because what we've seen, you know, we've gone through this series where we're talking about, you know, what it means to be a Christian in a culture that is resistant to your belief system, that is resistant to the way that you live. And so we've started very general. Remember in the very beginning, this was very general to us as Christians as a whole, and then it kind of has gotten more and more specific, more and more kind of down to earth where we are. And in the last few weeks, you know, where we talked about uh, how we engage with a governmental system uh, that is resistant or maybe isn't uh, completely on board with everything that you as a believer and a Christian live. Like how do we navigate that relationship with those authorities that God has established over us and given us? And then last, uh, last time when we were in First Peter, we discussed kind of on the more of an, in a sense of like an employee to employer relationship. Like how do you navigate those relationships of people who are your employer, or that authority that has been given to you? And all of those things, Peter always does this really great job of bringing everything back to the gospel. Kind of bringing everything back to what Jesus has done, what God has done. I, I, and, you know, between Paul and Peter and all the, the writers of the Bible, they constantly want to reference back to Jesus as that authority, as that kind of instruction as we navigate life, trying to figure out, I mean, because if we're honest, in all of these relational situations, you know, whether it's the government or our employers or, you know, we're going to talk about the marriage uh, next week, we'll talk about the church, you know, like how we navigate those relational, uh, complicated relational things, he constantly comes back to Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how that within itself is the kind of the foundational point at which we take all of these steps in. And so, you know, the theme of chapter 2 really was how are we observed by the outside world? As Christians, navigating a culture that maybe isn't quite as accepting of us as would be comfortable for us and only to progressively get worse as time goes on. But near the end of chapter 2, we begin to get a lot more specific and that, that conduct is really kind of being more individualized, really more down to earth uh, in a sense of how we respond in cer certain relationships. And so chapter 3 starts with some of the more practical ends of that. And then he starts right off here in the bat talking about our conduct in the home. Our conduct in the home, between the relationship of a husband and wife, within that context, how we conduct ourselves. How we navigate that space. You know, a couple weeks ago we talked about Martin Luther and he said this about marriage. He says, there is no more lovely, friendly, or charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. You know, he would also say that marriage is a, marriage is a uh, school for character in good and bad ways, right? When you enter into that space, when you're learning another person, living with another person, raising children with another person, navigating difficult situations and choices and, and all these things, that can become a very dynamic, but very complicated, very convoluted relationship, right? I mean, if you're married here this morning, you know the dynamics of a relationship it, are not easy because there's two different people from two different experiences, two different mindsets molded together in this beautiful holy union that God has given us for a man and a woman to join together in this relationship. It's, it's, it's a beautiful kind of place at which God works, but it also it can be very complicated. It can be very difficult, especially in a cultural situation where the world is pressing in and breaking down even the basic constructs of what marriage is. 
as the culture gnaws at those things and pries at those things, it becomes a, a, a very difficult situation even in, for Christians to navigate. And, and so as we read this this morning, I want us to see two things as usual. You know, I like to lay things out a little bit for us to kind of break them up, but um, they're, they're a little uneven this morning, but I hope I can help you understand. So the first six verses are very specific when speaking to the wife. And I don't want you to hear that, men, and be like, well, that's because they need more instruction than I do. <laughs> you know, but I would argue that it's because the, the wife plays one of the more vital roles in our relationships. And so we'll get to that as we move forward. But two things that I want us to see as we kind of, if I had to subtitle this, it would kind of be gospel intentions in the context of a relationship. You know, gospel intentional marriage. And so if I could sum everything up in one sentence, it would be this. That in a culture of chaos and resistance, the gospel is the only trustworthy motivator, director, and sustainer we can depend on in our relationships. That the gospel is the only trustworthy motivator, director, and sustainer we can depend on. Because in this culture, in this world, we are drawn to depend on many different things. Maybe it's ourselves. Maybe it's you know, resources. Maybe it's people, whatever it might be, as we're navigating good, bad, difficult, whatever it is, apathetic relationships where people just don't care. The whole, the whole all of this is brought together and really fine-tuned with and in the gospel. And that's where Peter is writing to these people to help them navigate this. And so verse 1, the first thing that I want us to see is the gospel intentional wife. The gospel intentional wife. Verse 1, he says this when he's speaking likewise. So when he says likewise, he's obviously referencing the context of the conversation that has led up to that moment. We're talking about submitting to authorities, uh, you know, within our life, governmental authorities and those type of things. And then he's talking about submitting to your master or your employer. And so he continues on and he says, likewise, in the same idea, in the same vein, Wives, be subjected to your own husbands. Or other translations may say, be in submission to. And so, remember, when we talk about submission, we are not talking about some domineering, slave-induced like idea of, 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 of bondage within the context of a relationship. Even when we talked about it in a governmental sense, we're talking about a willing subjection. Willingly, voluntarily placing ourselves in this place of, of submission. Allowing ourselves to be in this role. And so, as Peter writes here in verses 1-6, through 6, like I said, I truly believe he's writing this. You know, when we, we always have to take... You know, and, and it's very easy. A lot of people ask, well, how, do I, how can I know the context of a writing? Well, thank God we live in the information age where there is a lot of ways for us to know what is going on in these writings. Because that's very important for us as we read these things. Because these things have been taken out of context in so many ways and used and abused towards women and used and abused in the church. Uh, in, in ways that is damaging and domineering and that is not what Peter is writing to. And so Peter is writing to women who are in, in one sense, either unbelieving homes or he's writing to women of, of, of believing homes whose husbands are apathetic or don't see the value in their said relationship with God or in Jesus. And so it was very unheard of for a woman to take on a religious practice that was not her husband's. And so this is the people that Peter is writing to. He's writing to a group of women who have accepted Jesus, but their husbands have not. Or they're not following Him in the same capacity that they are. And so, imagining in an ancient world where women have no value, where women have no voice, Peter is writing to these women to encourage them in the midst of some very faithful but difficult steps that they're taking. So he's telling them, First off, you know, like I said, culturally unheard of. Unheard of for a woman to take on a religious belief that was not her husband's. And so he's giving them encouragement and instruction in these faithful steps. And so what he says in the very beginning, I love how Peter lays this out. In the midst of this space of obedience that they're attempting to walk in that has to be difficult, that has to be tough to navigate. That he says, kind of gives them this idea that gospel intentions begin with participation. 
that in the context of a relationship, he's speaking to wives who are navigating a relationship with a husband who is either an unbeliever or husbands who are apathetic or kind of careless towards their faith. He says this. He says, it kind of gives an idea of participation when he says, be subjected to your own husbands. So he's kind of focusing them into this idea of the place of their participation, the idea of their participation, and the idea of where the focus of their energy goes. You know, he's telling them, listen, I know you're discouraged. I know this seems difficult. I know this may even seem hopeless, but these are your husbands. These are the people you have entered into this relational context with. And he's telling them this can and will work. And he begins to lay out these instructions for them. You know, this holy bond that we enter into is so beautiful in so many ways because for us, God is mingling our souls together. When you enter into a relationship with uh, the, the, this woman or this man, uh, for our ladies, that enter into this relationship, that you are mingling together as one person, as one body, as one entity. Genesis 2.24, it tells us, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They are mingled together, one entity together. And so he says, you know, he's, he's trying to give them some encouragement in the midst of this as they navigate this. And the first thing he says, not only is this this idea of gospel intentions begins with participation, that this is your husband. But then he says, and before that he says, be subject to or be in submission. Remember, this is a voluntary step. And so when we say that, you know, a lot of times well, we think, well, that means that I just do whatever they tell me to do and I just, you know, live however they tell me to live. Absolutely not. Because even when we're considering, when we were talking about governmental systems or anything like that, anytime we speak of submission, we submit until, until that submission requires us to not submit to our heavenly authority. So we are not, ladies, you are not required to be in this place of voluntary submission if that submission pulls you or pushes you towards sin. That is not what he's called us to. And that's not what he's instructing here. But submission in this capacity, he is calling them to this step where they're leaning into that relational context, leaning into that place where they're participating in life with this individual. And this is important. And then we also have to understand that submission, just like what we talked about previously, submission in this capacity is still equality, dignity, and honor. Submission does not mean weakness. Submission does not mean relinquishing rights. We've talked about that in, in all of this. We're not relinquishing rights to have conversation. This is not a vow of silence in the context of your marriage or in your relationship. But this is an active participation in the spiritual journey of your relationship. You know, and so when we talk about submission, like I said, we have to understand submission is not weakness. Submission is not relinquishing authority. Submission is not letting go of equality or dignity or honor. Because Jesus, Jesus was in submission to his earthly mother and father, to Mary and Joseph. The Bible tells us that in Luke 2.51. It says he was submissive to them. I mean, this is God of heaven submitting to a man, a created man and a created woman. So we know that God is, that Peter is not drawing us into this idea where submission is weakness, where submission is inequality. That's not what he's saying here. Because submission is a choice. And Jesus made a choice to submit himself as creation in those moments to his created mother and father out of honor, out of respect in regards for their vision and their mission that they were sent, that he was sent to accomplish and God taking on the flesh of Jesus. And so Jesus was an example, not only of that, but Jesus was an example also in being submissive to God the Father, the kind of the fancy word that's used to describe this, a subordination. You know, God took on flesh in Jesus, but within that, and yeah, we're getting super complicated, but within that, Jesus the Son, God the Son, was submissive to God the Father. Even though in all equality they were the same, they held authority because, God, because Jesus was God. But in the context of what He was doing on earth for us, He was God the Son. And so within that, he was submitting to the authority, to, to the, the, the will of God the Father to die on the cross for broken sinners like me and you to offer us a way 
But within that, Jesus still held authority. Within that, Jesus still held equality with God, but chose to be in position as creation. Submission is not inferior. Personhood or spirituality are lesser importance. You know, and like I said, because this has been used and abused by men and women and even in the church, you know, to, to really, uh, by men in a lot of ways, to put women in their place or to come, kind of be domineering in a sense to control. When we read verses like this or we talk about submission or, 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 you know, even when we talk about spiritual headship within the home, the male being the spiritual head of the home and how that dynamic works and, and complementarianism, you know, how two, these men and women, they're equal, but they have different roles. You know, when, when people flinch when we talk about a man, you know, being the elder and teaching men and a woman, that not being necessarily their place in the church, that, that the Bible tells us that a, a woman does not become a pastor, does not preach and teach in the church. And so, you know, but when you say things like that, people flinch, people get upset. Well, you're talking about inequality. That's not what we're saying. But it's because of the way that's been used and abused that we, we, we see it through those lenses. But God is seeing this picture of people, complementary people, being placed into this relationship to accomplish a greater good and a greater goal for the kingdom of God on earth. Because we know that, that, that there is no sense of inequality in the kingdom of God when he speaks of it in this capacity. I mean, Paul would say in Galatians 3.28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so these are people in, play, in, in, in situations on complete opposite ends of the social spectrum. He says there's no difference. And so when we talk about the wife submitting in the relationship with her husband, this is not a call for any inequality or inferiority. This is a participation, a gospel participation in the relationships and for them, the relationships of their unbelieving or apathetic husbands. And then he continues on, not only to do that, this intentional gospel participation, but he says there's a, there's a purpose to it. There's a purpose. Continuing on in verse 1, he says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one. So what's the reason? Peter's telling us that through the life of a wife and submission and honor and respect to her husband that he may be one to the faith. So he's speaking to, to wives navigating a cultural sh shift where women are starting to take on a faith that is not their husband's and he's telling them, listen, your life could be active evangelism in the life of your unbelieving or, or careless husband to draw him into the faith through your faithfulness. Through your faithfulness. And like we said, this is not strict silence, but it's a sensitivity to the concerns of the unbelieving or disobedient husband. Remember, it's not a draw for us to be led to sin, for you to be led to sin, but he says leaning into this relationship, being submissive and respectful of your husbands in this context may win them, not through being silent, but being participators, being actively in prayer and in communion with your husband. You know, when he says, so that, uh, so that even if some do not obey the word, this word, word that he uses is the exact same word that is used in John 1.1 1, 1, when it says the word was with God and the word was God. So he's talking about those being in disobedience to Jesus Christ himself, the very word made incarnate, God made incarnate. He's saying that these husbands are living in disbelief or disobedience to who Jesus is. And so can you imagine the, the, the weight, I, and I understand the weight of that, and listen, this isn't all on you wives where it's like, well, your husband's not going to get saved or be a good Christian unless you do these things. That's not what I'm saying, but within that context, you have power, you have a place, you have participation that you can work in the context of your relationship when leaning in to the husband, your husband, he says early on, to your own husband, to the one that's yours, that you have claimed, that you have mingled together with under the holy bonds of marriage, to enter into this space that you have a power that God has given you to do something different in his life. 
you know, this is a common experience of our day, to, if we're honest, even in this context when we compare it. I love the biblical kind of narrative, how it can speak so much to where we are today, thousands of years after it's written. But the common experience in their day and also in ours is that women are spiritually connected more than men are. Men are just in a sense, and general, generally speaking, more distant, more removed, because men are naturally more self-reliant and proud. You know, we talk about this in our men's group all the time, that, that, that the problem with men a lot of times is that we don't want to have to depend on anything else or anyone else to accomplish what we feel like is our responsibility to do. As a man, I'm supposed to take care of my family. As a man, I'm the provider. No one else is the provider. I don't need to depend on anyone else to do what I as the man am I supposed to do. And that's the context at which we enter into this religious space with. And so because we have this mindset where we're like, the dependence is weakness. And so for men, the reason a lot of times men push back against really pouring themselves into the faith is because they don't want to claim to be or acknowledge their dependence or need for anything because we believe that that shows that we're weakness, that we have weaknesses. And we don't like to acknowledge our weakness. But the beautiful thing is, you know, and we'll get to this, and why this portion is so important, because studies would say, and, and there's a couple of biblical examples of this, but studies would say that over 90% of the time, there's a 90% more likelihood that when a husband is saved in the household or, or begins to follow Jesus obediently, that the entire household will also. So what does that mean? Does that mean that the wife is incapable of doing that? Absolutely not. But what it shows is that the natural dynamic of the household is to look towards the husband. It's to look towards the husband for leadership. It's to look towards the husband for those right steps. You know, and, and, and within that context, if that's not how things are playing out, the Bible is telling, Peter is saying here that the wife, you play a role in that. In bringing that about, in reestablishing or establishing that husband within that context of that place to help them see, to help them know that they can lead in that way, that they can be that poor, poor, point at which gospel change happens between kids, between, uh, between the people around you, between the inner circles of our families. There is work to be done in that, and God has given wives the power and the potential to work in the midst of that. So for the wife, you know, intentional participation in the relationship lines you up with God's purpose for your families, even with an unbelieving or spiritually shallow or distant husband. And so what he's calling them to, he's calling their conduct. He says further down in verse 1, he says, they're one without a word by the conduct of their wives. And so what does this require? What does this require? This requires wives to not be ashamed of your faith. To let your faith be seen. To let your faith be cultivated. To let your faith be developed. Because what this will show, you know, especially in a context where husbands and men, we, you know, we naturally push back against religion because we feel like in a sense it's a revelation of weakness. But what happens is when a wife consistently steps faithfully in front and, and reveals this endurance and this confidence and this strength that they have in their faith, that shows a husband that, you know what, maybe this isn't about weakness, but this is about confidence in a faithful God who endures. You know, and I, I, I say this all the time, and, and she's not here this morning, so I'll talk about her, but, you know, when I think about this, it, it just reminds me about my own story. You know, my wife was not perfect, and I'm not saying this because she's perfect, but what I can say about my wife is that my wife was consistent. My wife endured, and in, in the early parts of our marriage was very difficult spiritually, and I was very just hard-headed and very resistant, and I pushed back, you know, when I tried to do all these things my way and, and what I could do. And, you know, I just think back to those times and I think about my wife's patience with me. But I also think about her consistency with me, always reminding me about our spiritual responsibility as husband and wife. You know, she never uh, tried to use her faith to shame me. She never tried to do these things in a way, but she was patient. And she constantly invited me into those things that she was doing and wanting me to see, wanting me to reveal. And, and within the midst of that, and, and wanted God to reveal those things. And I know she was praying for me. I know she was. And that within the context of that early part of our marriage, we're raising kids and, and we're struggling through trying to just make it by and do all these things, that was, it was in, within that. 
through, through her faithfulness and her endurance that I truly believe I, that it was part of this story that God was molding my life together. That it was molding my life together. And I, you know, and there's so many ways. And when we get to the husbands, we'll see how this really plays into this a lot more too. But, you know, for, for the wife, the power that you have is, is unbelievable in the context. And if your husband hasn't told you, they depend on you more than they've made known. You know, and, and this isn't meant to shift a lot of weight because we'll get to the man part. So don't worry, man. You're going you're gonna to get it too. And we'll get it also. But for the wife, you have a real personal evangelism by living visibly in a way that reflects the gospel, even without your husband's participation. That there is work that you can do. And really this references back to 1 Peter 2, uh, 11, 11 through 12 when we're talking about how we live in front of people. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So with all of this, so remember Peter's speaking to a group of women who are in a context of a relationship with either an unbelieving husband or a husband that is disobedient or apathetic. And so he's telling them, he's listen. The, the way that you navigate this relationship and grow this relationship is by giving yourself over to allowing yourself to be confident and live this Christian life in front of them. And so to do that, it requires you as a wife to have a spiritual life that is developing. And it can't be dependent on your husband. Listen, and we'll get to that where I'll make those connections a little bit later on because I'm not saying those things are separate. But it requires and what it needs is it needs you to be seeking after God confidently so as you step into these things, you have direction, you have power that you're not dependent on yourself, that you're not leaning on yourself, that you're not having to be confident in your own actions or your own abilities, but you're being driven by this gospel that's constantly being reconstituted within your mind and revealed and shown and manifested through what you read, through how you pray, through how you worship, through how maybe you deal with your kids, maybe where your husband doesn't. Through constantly participating in all these things, the Bible says that God will use those things as evidence before your husband to move him, to motivate him, and to reveal to him the things in the place at which God has called him to. And in verse 2, that conduct, she says, is respectful and pure conduct. And so how do we kind of evaluate that? We know, for one thing, not taking the opportunities to devalue or disgrace. You know, I can tell you one thing about men is... is, is and, and just even in the context, if we're honest with ourselves, men, the person who can dismantle you or disgrace you more than anyone else is your wife, right? Because they know you. They know who you are when you're not here. They know what you struggle with at home. They know the, the, you know, the, the anger that you have at times. They know your temper. They know, they know things about you that no one else does. And so that in the context of maybe an argument, in the context of a situation where maybe emotions are high, they can dismantle you like no one else can. And so, as you enter into those spaces, what Peter is saying is he's saying to allow your desire for respect, to respect. I mean, remember, we talked about that even with, we're talking about the government. We may not always feel like these authorities above us deserve our respect. But what did Peter tell us to do? He said, respect Respect the position. Respect and honor Caesar. Remember when we were talking about it in that context. And so listen, I'm speaking as a husband that at times does not deserve a lick of respect. I don't deserve patience. I don't deserve kindness. I don't deserve a lot of things sometimes. But what he's calling you to is to allow respect to be that thing that you, that you give up. You know, and remember, this is that meekness. This is that willing submission, voluntarily submitting ourselves for the sake of, you know, and then pure conduct, this pursuit of holiness for the sake of eliciting value, revealing commitment, while also living out the holiness God has called each of you to. You know, in Titus 2, 4 through 5, it says, so you're uh, talking about kind of the context of, a, of, of young women to old women relationship, but he's kind of speaking to how 
the, to live. He says, so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may, be, may not be reviled. May not be reviled. So there's something about stepping into a relationship purposely and intentionally that reveals the Word of God and causes it to be celebrated. So how is this done? And we'll move on because I'm, I'm getting kind of caught up. But verse 3 and 4, he says, how does a woman do this? How does a woman in a relationship with, her, with an unbelieving husband or a husband that is apathetic or disobedient to the Word of God? He says, cultivate inner beauty. Cultivate inner beauty. So what does he say in verses 3 through 4? I love these verses. He says, do not let your adorning be external. But he says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, which in God's sight is very precious, taking, not taking opportunities to devalue or disgrace, but like we said, to elicit value and commitment. So what is he saying here? He's saying, do not be focused on in the relationship. He says, don't let your adorning be external. So what are we saying? A lot of people would take that and say, well, that means that women shouldn't wear fancy clothes or shouldn't wear jewelry or shouldn't fix their hair a certain way. That's not what this verse is saying. What he's trying to show us is he's trying to show us where the focus is and how you are trying to keep or to motivate your husbands. He says, don't let your adorning be external. So the saying here is the focus trying to get your husband's attention and participation and affection by looks. Because, you know, in this cultural state that we live in, it's all about how you look, right? It's all about the external. It's all about what you present. And the idea, and the church has even fallen short about this, is telling a woman, you better look and act a certain way towards your husband because that's your responsibility to make him attractive to you. I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of ourselves and, and we shouldn't present ourselves uh, properly before each other. That's not what I'm saying. But when we're talking about the context of a spiritual relationship, Looks may win a husband, but they won't win a husband to the Lord. And so when he's talking about these things that we invest, that as ladies, as you invest, as you pour yourself into, as you allow to be the motivating factor for how you draw your husband into a close relationship with you, how you draw your husband into participation with you, he's telling them, listen, do not let your focus, the way you exhaust yourself. I mean, you think about this idea of, of gold, which would have been expensive, of, uh, of, of, you know, he talks about braided hair, which would have taken time, of these particular clothings, all these things that would have been layered and really made out of fine linen and all these things. He's saying you spend time, you spend money, you spend effort to do all these things to make your husband give you any attention. He says you're missing the point. He says stop focusing there. Stop allowing yourself to be called up in all of these things. He's telling let your adorning be, let your cultivating be, let your investment be more so of more value, of more worth to the hidden person of the heart. Because within that, God will mold your character. He will make you and He will draw your husband into this spiritual marriage as a spiritual relationship. No ifs, ands, or buts about it, whether you're believing or unbelieving. I always tell everybody, I deal with death all the time. And for me, and if you're not sure what I do, I'm a hospice nurse. I'm not like a serial killer or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, in the context of our relationship, you know, in, in all of this, uh, you know, just like a marriage is a spiritual relationship, whether you're believing or unbelieving, death is a spiritual experience, whether you're an unbeliever or not. It just is. And so, within the context of a marriage to draw that mingling in, to build it, to make it stronger. He says, and he calls it, I love how Peter says this, the imperishable beauty. Because listen, our looks are going to change. Right? Our looks change. You know, I, I tell my wife all the time, like you just get better looking with every year, but it's not that you weren't good looking before. You got to be careful how you say stuff like that, right? Because, uh, oh, well, I did, or else I say something like, you look so nice today. Like, well, do I not normally look nice on other days? You know, so you got to be really careful how you say those things. But, you know, our looks change. These bodies degrade. We, we, we go through all of this. And so when he's telling us, you know, when the focus of our life, you know, when the focus of the cultivating our relationship is on the external, listen, that's perishable. That's perishable. It's going to change. Situations are going to change. Circumstances are going to change. Looks are going to change. All of those things. But he says the unfading, the incorruptible, the undecaying beauty is that beauty within that is cultivated by the gospel of Jesus in the heart of a believing wife. You know, John 6, verse 27 says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, 
which the Son of Man, Jesus, will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. So Peter isn't saying it's wrong to dress nice, but he is comparing their lack of worth compared to the graces of God within the heart of a person as being the motivating factors for drawing your husbands to you. And then verse 5, he reminds them, he says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Like we said, looks may win a husband, but they won't win a husband to the Lord. And the the, the, the longevity of a relationship, the, the, the joy and the, the, the growth of a relationship spiritually and physically, whatever it might be, it is dependent on that relationship with the Lord. It grows that, it cultivates that, and motivates that. And then, you know, I love in Proverbs 31, you know, a lot of, a lot of women are apprehensive to read Proverbs 31 because you read that and you feel like, well, this is the perfect woman. Listen, I read Proverbs 31 and I don't think this is the perfect woman at all, but I think this is the real woman. I think this is the woman, the place at which God has pointed uh, the, our, our, the, the ladies, uh, Christian ladies of our church to move towards. And I don't think it's meant to discourage, but I think it's meant to be this point at which you pursue. Proverbs 31.10 and verse 30 says this. He says, An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. And he says this in verse 30, and I love this. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This is the woman that you want, man. And ladies, this is the woman you want to be. Simply this. Not that you're perfect, not that you've got it all together, not that you keep a perfect house, not that you do, that you look perfectly, not any of those things. What is worthy to be praised is a wife who fears or respects or loves God. That's it. Love God. Respect Him, revere Him in your life. And it makes the difference. And then the last thing is this, men. Is that God has called us be gospel intentional husbands. And I believe God just, uh, Peter just used one verse here to explain this because if it had been more than that, we'd have got distracted and forgot. So he's very clear, very precise. Verse 7, he says, Likewise, in the same way, everything we've said and done up to this point apply to your life as a man in leading and guiding and, and loving your wife and leading your family. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives. And I think this is the perfect way for Peter to start this section because I think this is the biggest place at which husbands and Christian husbands where we can fall short. Live with your wives. Be present with your wives. Mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, be there. Because who is the most distracted group of people in the entire world? That's a man, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I am thinking about a hundred different things at one time at all moments of the day. And so what does that do? You know, there's been many times where my wife has looked at me and she says, are you like here right now? Right? Men, have you gotten that? Have they looked at you and be like, what are you thinking about? Like, where are you at? So listen, we talk about this in our men's group. It's very easy to be present, but it takes intentions to be really present, Right? To be giving of your attention to your wife. Of giving your thoughts. Giving yourself over in this moment to live with them. Be present. Be participating. Don't be distant. Don't be running. Don't be too busy. Don't be too consumed. When you're with them, be with them. The gospel calling of an intentionally gospel man and husband is to be present with your wife. Christian men, be present with your wife. I, and I have to pre I'm preaching this to myself as we're saying this. Be present with your wife. And he says, and continuing on in verse 7, live with your wives in an understanding way. In an understanding way. The only way you can understand something is for one to be present, and the only way you can be present is to hear them, and the only way you can hear them is to listen to them. Right? God has called us as Christian husbands to be listening to your wife. Hear your wife. Hear what she has to say. Hear what she's going through. Hear her concerns. Hear what she wants for your relationship or what she wants for the family. Hear from her. 
Listen, uh, for us as husbands, most of the time we navigate life with earmuffs where we just hear mumbled things and the only thing we really hear is what we're thinking. God has called us to be husbands that hear. That we're leaning into that relationship, knowing them, hearing them. You know, because, listen, when it's all said and done, our number one responsibility isn't provision. That is not our number one responsibility as men. Your number one responsibility isn't provision, but it's participation in the life with the spouse that God has given you and the pursuit of God collectively in that relationship. That is the greatest responsibility that we have. Because provision looks different, right? We maybe currently, you have maybe you have a great job, you have a great situation, and provision looks a certain way. But listen, in a moment, that ability to provide in that way can change, right? We can go from being able to provide all these things that make us extremely comfortable to that provision looking different. And the problem is for us, especially as men, is that when we have this level of provision, we expect that this is the level of provision I have to constantly fight for. And then that becomes the priority. Then we begin to sacrifice life. We begin to sacrifice our wife. We begin to sacrifice our presence and participation in the context of this relationship that God has given us. And then not only that, continuing on, he says this in verse 7, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So start, let's start at the first part of that because the second part of that I heard later. Ugh. First part of that, showing honor to the woman. To show honor is to denote value, to give respect. So in the same way, remember likewise for wives to husbands, to give respect, to give respect, to give honor. Same thing for us as husbands. You are called to honor your wife, to elevate her. She should never, and this is a struggle that I've had to navigate even in ministry, where I've elevated ministry to the highest level of praise and honor in my life, that my wife has to question where she falls in that spectrum of honor. Don't let your wife have to question her status as the most valuable thing to you in your life. She needs to be confident that she is number one. She has to be. Number one over your kids. Number one over your job. Number one over everything else. She's number one, and she needs to know that. She needs to know that. And then continuing on in that verse, it says, Honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So what are we saying there? What are we saying there? The weaker vessel is not speaking of any inability that women have. Let's be very clear. But what it is speaking to, and remember, we have to consider cultural context. Because a lot of people would say that, well, the Bible is misogynistic, or the Bible hates women, or thinks that they are no good, or can't do anything. That's not the case. But it's speaking to, for one, a cultural situation, but just even in, in reality, a, a, a biological situation. You know, when it talks about men, a weaker vessel, it's more of a focus on the vulnerability of women, whether it's in a genetic predisposition to just be physically weaker just because how men and women are built, we're just built differently, but also speaking even to this time, in times in our history, culturally at times, that they've held little value. Now remember, in this context, women held little value. They had no voice. They had no vote. They were viewed almost the same level as children were. Women were basically only good to them for having babies and making sure the home was taken care of. And so when he is speaking to these men in this context, he's telling them. You know, in, in a lot of ways, this message is, is countercultural to, to, you know, any other message in this day because it's denoting value to women. It's, it's, it's showing that they have value and responsibility and all these things that they attribute into the relationship. And so what it's saying to men, what it's saying to men, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, is to not use any of your strengths in any capacity to leverage them over your wife. And so what could we be saying there? Not to leverage, you know, your physical strength. Not to leverage your emotional strength. Maybe even not to leverage your financial strengths. If you're the breadwinner, to not use that to your advantage to dishonor your wife. 
Yeah, because just culturally, in a lot of ways, the, the man is the breadwinner in, some, in a lot of situations. And so if you have that and you use that as a weapon against your wife, you are, you are follow, 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 falling under a stint of disobedience to God and that you are dishonoring her. Or that, like we said, physically or emotionally, any of these things that you leverage against your wife, it is showing dishonor and it is unbiblical and it is not what God has called us to so he tells to honor women as the weaker vessel in a sense. He's saying to them, don't leverage any strengths that you have against them. Don't use that for your selfish gain. And then continuing on in verse 7, and we'll finish up, he says this, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. He's talking about an equality in our eternity. That men and women entering into this relationship of marriage, that your souls are mingled together, that they hold as heirs the same equal eternity that you do. And so he's telling us that there's a dependence that we have as men on the relationship spiritually we have with our wives because we are one, we are intertwined. And the experience that we have as husband and wife share in navigating the spiritual growth that we have. And so when we talk about our relationship with God and our relationship with our spouse, it is number one. God is number one. But we have to also understand the Bible tells us that when we get married, we enter into that relationship, we are one flesh. And so because God is number one, we cannot adequately pursue God completely as just one individual. Not that we shouldn't remember, because we talked about honoring God and, and pursuing, cultivating that within ourselves, but the goal and the intention should be that those two parts of that mingled soul are in unison together. Moving in that direction together, because you're going to, and if you're navigating that relationship right now, then you know this, that it feels, you feel like something's off if you're the only one in the relationship pursuing Jesus, right? You feel that. You feel that way, like there's something missing in my relationship. It's because when you got married, you became one person. And so if only one part of that is pursuing God, then there's going to feel like there's a breakdown somewhere. It's going to feel like there's something missing because we're intended to pursue this together. Together, why? And he says in 1 Peter 3, 7, he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so for men... I would ask you this. If you feel disconnected from God, this is the question we have to ask ourselves. And the assessment we have to make is to assess your connection to your wife. If your relationship with God feels off, assess your relationship with your wife. Because there may be breakdown there. There may be distance there. Because you're intended to be together in that relationship, pursuing God together. And listen, and that's hard. One of the most awkward things you can do in the beginning, is having spiritual conversations with your wife. Especially because a lot of times as men, we feel uh, inadequate. We feel like we don't know enough to engage in those conversations or to pray in front of our good Lord. Don't ask to pray in front of Him or to pray for Him or to do anything like that. And so that's stuff that we have to be willing to lean into and work through together. And our intentions and our desires should be able to do those things confidently together. But it all comes back to this idea where for each individual, your pursuit of God obviously is, is in a sense individualized, but the intentions are for it to overlap, to be unified. That you are equally yoked, as the Bible says, navigating this relationship. C.S. Lewis said this about marriage, and I love this. He says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. That's because God is that, that binding force that brings us together. You will not ever have a true, satisfying marriage until you are pursuing God. And until you are working towards pursuing God together. And listen, I'm not saying that day one, your pursuit of God together is here. Listen, it's a process. You begin somewhere. You navigate those spaces together and you begin leaning into that. And husbands, the challenge is for you to you to step into that. For us to step into that confidently. Ephesians 5.25, he says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He is not, and a lot of times a husband will read that and say, well, I'm never going to be Christ. So he's not asking us to be Christ. 
But what he's calling us to is a mindset of loving selflessly. To not love for our own sake. To not love for our own gain. But to love selflessly by giving ourselves over into that relationship. Leaning into it being present. Colossians 3.19 Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Not leveraging our power. Not leveraging what we have against them for our own benefit. Love selflessly. Love selflessly. And so I'll end with this. Wrap up with our sentence again. In a culture of chaos and resistance, the gospel is the only trustworthy motivator, director, and sustainer we can depend on in our relationships. The gospel. The gospel of Jesus came and died and lived for us. And because of that, who, that, who He is and what He's done, church, this is the place as wives and as husbands that we step to find unity. That we, find, that we step to find process and progress together. And so for wives to leave off with, to do this, to understand and embrace the participating practice of evangelism instruction and instruction you can bring to your husband when you pursue Christ and it overflows into action, confident action, being confident, not allowing that unbelieving or, or disobedient husband to drag you away from your pursuit of Jesus but using that as a way of winning him to Jesus by the graces of God that he has given you. And then husbands, to be present, to pay attention, to be attentive, to give honor and value because of the mingled nature of your spirits. She is the most valuable and essential relationship you will ever have and make sure she knows it. Make sure she knows it and live it. And live it. And we live this from the gospel of Jesus, being our motivator, being our guide, and our sustainer. That the fullness of this experience of life that God has given us in our marriage is found in the gospel. And it, and it is found in its fullness when we pursue that gospel together. When we pursue that gospel together. Is it perfect? No. Will we struggle? Yes. Will we fail a lot of times? Yes. But my prayer for you and my prayer even for myself that I have to say all the time is to be patient. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with your spouse and continue to pursue that together. So church, let us pray as the worship team comes up. We'll sing one more quick song in worship together and just honor God in this moment and just lean towards Him in dependence and what He has for us and what we pray that He'll do for us and with us in the context of our relationships and our marriage. So let us pray together.